Hi, everybody. My name is Doug. I'm a grateful alcoholic. Hey, grateful to be an alcoholic and grateful to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, uh, you may not find much comfort in that if you're new. Uh, so, I know when, when I was new, I heard somebody say, I'm a, I'm a grateful alcoholic, and I thought, and a moron. You're an idiot. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I want to thank Don for inviting uh, me and, and my wife, Carla, who you earlier uh, Sunday morning. I guess we're doing something tomorrow, too. Um, but uh, uh, we love doing this. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Bob and Tracy for picking us up at the airport today. We had a lot of fun. And it's you know it's always fun to just to, to go someplace uh, where you don't live and and hang out with people that you don't know you know and it's uh, uh, I heard somebody say Alcoholics Anonymous the place where you can go to a room full of strangers and reminisce and uh, uh, that's that's a pretty good description of AA I uh, grateful to be an alcoholic and. Uh, um, as far as I know, I'm the only alcoholic in my immediate family, and um, I'd rather be me than them. Um, and, and not that there's anything wrong with it. I come from a great, like, loving, happy musical family. I don't mean professional musicians, just, we just, you know, they sang. I, I grew up uh, with a family that would sing and uh, play instruments and, and laugh, and uh, uh, my, my dad was a... Uh, a uh, very responsible guy, you know. He he wasn't an alcoholic. He would uh, um, he liked his beer, but the the idea of of drinking so much beer that it affected your speech and your walk was just insane. Uh, he couldn't imagine why anybody would do that. Uh, I tried to explain to him that wasn't the intention. It's just what happens. Uh, and uh, my mother may be an alcoholic. We don't know. She, you. you, you you can't really tell because she won't drink. And, you know, if they won't drink, you can't tell. Uh, I asked her after I got sober, because I'm looking for I thought it was real important to find out why I'm an alcoholic. Once I accepted I'm an alcoholic, it's like, well, I, I heard that 90% of the people on the planet are not alcoholics. Uh, how come me? You know, um, it didn't seem fair because uh, I shouldn't have to stop drinking because I really like drinking. Uh, some people that, like my dad, if he had to stop drinking, it wouldn't be a big deal. So why not him instead of me, people like us that like drinking? But it just seemed like, I don't know, like if I figured out why I'm an alcoholic, then I could stop or something. I don't I mean, um, or I could fix it. I don't you know. So I could, I could have a cold beer on a hot day or a glass of red wine with a with a. A steak, you know, or a, a little sake with my sushi, or a margarita with my enchilada. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, or sometimes get a fifth of whiskey and chug it down and have an inappropriate experience. Uh, but, uh, but so I mean, I asked my mom, why, "Why don't you drink?" And she said, "What do you care?" I said, "Well, I just, I, 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 you, you." Why don't you drink? You never drink. I mean, most people drink sometimes. You just never do. Are you an alcoholic? And she said, am I Am I what? <laughs> have you ever seen me take a drink of alcohol? No, I never have. But I know hundreds of alcoholics that don't drink. So that's what I'm asking. Like, how come you don't drink? She said, why do you care about this? I said, okay, here's the deal. I didn't want to embarrass you, but... Um, 
there's such a thing as a genetic predisposition. It may be your fault I'm a drunk, Mom. You know, so. <laughs> And uh, and she had pretty much the same reaction you just had, and uh, she said, "I, my fault." Well, she said, "I'll tell you the truth is, when I was young, I drank, you know, with friends that drank and family. But every time I drank, I got sick, stupid, and obnoxious, so I stopped." And I said, "You got to drink through that, Mom. You know." <laughs> You know, I'm preaching to the choir, right? You know, uh, the promised land lies beyond six stupid and obnoxious. But she, she, uh, my mom didn't have the tenacity to make this program. You know, you got to stick with it. So, I don't know. I, I, I love my life as an alcoholic. Carla and I have have a great life. You know, we have we have just a a wonderful sober life. And and I kind of thought maybe the fun was over. You know, when I considered stopping drinking forever. And, I, and there was a part of me that said, well, you know, you've used up your share of fun, man. You know, maybe it's time. You know, just get serious. And thank God I didn't have to. I don't know if I could have stayed here if I had to live a serious life. Carla and I laugh all the time. And uh, I never saw anybody laugh like the first time she saw me naked. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I don't have any bad days. I don't have any bad days. I tell that to new new people that I sponsor sometimes, and they go, "You do. Everybody does." No, really. I have things that happen that I that I don't like. Uh, but I'm sober long. And by the way, my sobriety date is June seventh, nineteen eighty seven. So. If I stay sober another 12 days, I guess uh, I'll have 29 years of sobriety, which uh, I'd have a lot more if I hadn't drank so damn much, you know. But uh, but uh, my sponsor's name is Bob Bizance, and, and my home group is called the Winner's Attitude Adjustment Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet every day at 7 a.m. every day of the year uh, in Studio City, California, Co- corner of Colfax and Addison, if you're ever in that area at that time of day. Um, and uh, some people say uh, that's all you need to stay sober. If you got a sobriety date and a sponsor and a home group, that's all you need to stay sober. Which I don't. I mean, you know, I'm not just argue. I will argue for argument's sake, but I, I don't. I, I got a good. I got a good argument. I think a big book would be very helpful, you know. And, and, uh, and now I can add Facebook to that. So you know, uh, I, I uh, every year. Around uh, New Year's, I hear somebody in a participation meeting saying, I'll be so glad to see this year end. Uh, uh, This has been an awful year for me. And I always think, really, the whole year. The whole year has been bad. And what did it start like January 1st? And then it was just miserable the whole time. And then on December 31st, it's going to end. And it was like, sun will come up tomorrow. I don't know, you know. it's just it's a strange concept to me. I had a bad year because I don't have bad days. I've had I had a friend of mine this last New Year's and she's a she's a good AA. She's sober about 15 years. And I mean, she's a good AA. She does panels. She sponsors people. She she works the steps. But she said to me, because uh, uh, I don't want to give you the impression she's a bad AA. But um, but she said to me, oh, God, aren't you so glad to get rid of 2015? I'll be so happy to see 2015 in the rearview mirror. And I said, really? Like the whole, it was a bad year for you? Oh, God, yes. She said, you know, in August, I came home from work and I was tired and my cat was dead on the floor. And I said, and I get that. You know, we love our pets. But um, 
If I wanted to, I could make 2015 look like a bad year for me. In 2015, in May, my my younger sister is 20. She's two years uh, younger than me to the day. Um, she lived in Wichita, and she got cancer in her foot, and, she, and and it started to metastasize. She had to have her leg amputated, and then um, and that was uh, earlier. And then after she got used to walking around with one leg. Um, the cancer metastasized and it got up and they had to replace her hip and then they finally they said they're going to take the other leg off she said no no just let it go and she just passed away just let it go and so I lost my sister last May in, in, in 2015 and in uh, in September of 2015 my sponsor Dick Martin uh, passed away and that both of those instances ripped a piece of my heart out but it didn't make the whole year. It didn't even make the whole day bad. It just it hurts, hurts. And in November, my mother died. So I mean, if I wanted, if I wanted to color 2015 like that, I could make myself such a victim. But I'm not a victim. 2015 was not a bad year. I had some things happen, like I said, that that uh, I wouldn't have chosen to happen. But that's the kind of thing that happens. People get injured. People get hurt. Uh, people die. People are born. You get jobs. You lose jobs. You know, uh, all that. Uh, but my friend uh, just had to have 2015 be a miserable year. And I, I uh, see. Now, I know her story. The year before she got sober, she had a she had a little uh, like freelance uh, fellatio distribution company and uh, uh, on Sepulveda Boulevard in uh, in L.A. And and. Uh, <laughs> And somebody set her hair on fire, uh, and uh, that was a year before she got sober. Uh, now, see, I, I don't know if that's a bad year, but it was a day changer, I'll tell you. And, and, uh, uh, I had the good taste not to mention that to her, you know, to just say, sorry about your cat. Uh, but, uh, but it's easy to forget how, what good lives we get here, you know, what, what great lives we get. We're, we're given this gift. Uh, and 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 you start living in the gift, and you you're, you're surrounded by. Chucksy used to talk about fish swimming around in the ocean looking for water. You know that's that's what we're doing here. Um, I don't know why I'm an alcoholic. I tried to figure out why I'm an alcoholic, and I don't. Know, I didn't start too young. Uh, I didn't come from an alcoholic family. I uh, I, I I'm way I look at it. Uh, I went to a party when I was 18, and uh, had a couple of drinks. And I, I turned out I had a gift for dancing, <laughs> and, uh, and I sang in public, and uh, and I had sex, you know. So uh, I woke up uh, in the morning with my face stuck to the carpet, with dried blood and vomit, and I was 42 years old. And uh, <laughs> you know, I was like, how does this stuff happen? Uh, you know, I just. I just, uh, a friend of mine, I started drinking when I was 18, and I got, actually, because a, a girlfriend that I had, uh, my friend Morris was a couple of years older, no, he wasn't, he was a couple of months older than me, and he was sort of my sexual sponsor, and he told me, if you want to get a home run with this girl, you're going to have to get her drunk, 
and I, I didn't care about drinking. I, I had friends that got drunk, and they looked stupid and obnoxious, and I, it just wasn't appealing to me. And like I said, there was no drinking in my family to speak of, so I just wasn't interested in it. But I, but I had this other agenda going on. <laughs> okay, well, if I have to get her drunk, that's the way it goes. And so I went and stole a quarter of Rainier Ale, which is kind of the national beverage of Garden Grove, California, where I grew up in uh and uh, so we went and parked by the railroad tracks, and we'd parked by the railroad tracks a lot of time, but this time I got my, my bottle, you know, and I, would, I still didn't care about drinking. I would have been happy to say, here, drink this and let me know when you're ready. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's rude, you know, So I, and I knew that. So, so I opened up that bottle, and I just uh, looked at her, and I had a little pull, and I handed it to her, and she had one. And we passed it back and forth till it was gone, and, I mean, it seems kind of awkward to stand in front of a room full of alcoholics going, listen, a half quarter of Rainier Ale will take you downtown. But if you're if you're 18 years old and you've never had any alcohol, half a quarter of Rainier Ale is enough to get your attention. And I felt warm and loose and uh, um, and, and Morris was right. It turned out um, <laughs> that was the first time I ever... Uh, I ever got an alcohol buzz and the first time I ever had sex in front of a witness. So uh, I just, uh, you know, I'm going to do both these things as much as I can the rest of my life. Uh, uh, I did the best I could. But I started to tell you, uh, it was actually it was Morris's mom. The three of us were sitting around, I was about 20 years old, and we were sitting around in, in the kitchen. And she opened a bottle of wine and poured three glasses of wine. And we're sitting there talking and drinking and laughing. And I said, you know, I feel really good. And she said, it's the wine. And I said, no, 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 I don't mean, I don't feel drunk. I just feel good. I feel good. She said, it's the wine. It's the wine. Really? <laughs> if you could have a couple of swallows of a, a liquid and then feel this good, why doesn't everybody do it all the time? And what I didn't know was that it doesn't do that for everybody. Um, and, uh, you know, how do you know? We don't know. Uh, I have some alcohol, and it does, makes me feel a certain way, and I assume it does that for everybody. So things, uh, you know, things just one thing led to another. I end up, uh, I learned to play guitar, and, and I started singing in coffee houses and and uh, doing a little comedy and sing a song. And I got I got hired a lot to to open up for some uh, some expensive acts because I wasn't very expensive and nobody really knew what I did. I did some cover songs, some original songs, some comedy, some, you know, and, and so they would uh, they got to open for a lot of um, big acts and, and Big Brother and the Holding Company and uh, Paul Butterfield Blues Band and, and the Association. And, and so uh, and, and I, I ended up. Uh, having a little musical career and and then I came home from that and uh, um, started and started work I started working as a stagehand in in TV uh, just a, a prop man and um, I was doing that until I get my career going and 25 years later I retired from that uh, <laughs> the last 13 years of my life uh, uh, setting up uh, uh, living room and kitchen sets and uh, and prizes for the prices right, you know. So they, <laughs> that's what I did. That's what I did for a living. And and, uh, and I got sober about halfway through that run. And um, so so half of my career as a stagehand, I was sober. But before that, um, I I was it, my life just started to go downhill and downhill. I was making good money. Uh, I had a child. I was supporting my daughter, but she I didn't live with her. Um, 
she lived with her mom and her stepfather and and uh i was you know and i i, I got into some drugs i mean i, I know this is this is aa and i don't want to um i don't want to uh insult aa or 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 but I, drugs are part of my story and and they are a lot of alcoholic story and if i leave them out it'd be like i'm hiding something from you but so i sometimes i don't know how to deal with that if i had known you know, when it when I was in the middle of it, uh, the first time somebody said, "Hey man, try this," I would have said, "Yeah, I mean, I, geez, I'd love to, but I'm going to be speaking at an AA meeting in 30 years." You know, and I, I don't want to piss anybody off, so uh, you know. And I only used, frankly, only used every drug I ever heard of. So, uh, uh, but I never found one better than Bushmills Irish whiskey. Moment of silence, please. Anyway, uh, you got some good alcohol here. I mean, Budweiser and Southern Comfort. Woo, woo, you know. Go St. Louis. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I would have just stayed here and drank Bud and, and Soco, you know. But uh, uh, that, that was enough to get by. But anyway, anyway I, I'm getting distracted. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not getting distracted. I came here distracted. Uh, anyway, um, so... But I had, uh, like, 1983 was not a good year for me. Um, I started off uh, in January. I went skiing up at uh, Mammoth with my sister and my girlfriend. And and uh, we went, uh, the way I like to ski, I like to get, get there at 8.30 when the lifts first open and the snow is all groomed. And uh, uh, get on the lifts, take my gloves off, hook them on my vest reach over here, get my little vial of cocaine, just do a little wake up one and one and then reach over here, this pocket, because, you know, vest, ski vest got a lot of pockets. Get, a, get my little uh, flask of whiskey, have a little shot of whiskey, yeah, and, uh, you know, start to get loosened up, get my pipe out, my windless pipe, and enjoy the scenery all the way up to the top and get off, check the bindings, get that boater bag, have a little shot of white wine, nice and loose, you know, because I think that, Feeling it is really more important than seeing it. It's just a, it's a, I'm a soul skier, you know what I'm saying? And so, uh, and, and it actually, it, and it works pretty good for a while. Uh, but after <laughs> around 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon when the shadows are getting long and the snow is starting to ice over the top, and, uh, and, and you, you know, I've been doing this all day long. I'm in no condition to be involved in an athletic event. So, uh, so I went down this one run, and uh, I got down to this, this turn, this hard left turn, and there's a cliff there. And uh, I went off the cliff. Now, don't get the impression I did it was an accident. I uh, <laughs> I thought I could do it. Uh, it's just, uh, I, it was it was shortly after the Winter Olympics, and and uh, um, so I had seen these guys, you know, jump 170 meters or whatever they do, and so 25 foot cliff really didn't look like a big challenge. But, uh, you know, those Olympic skiers, no matter what their style is or what country they're from, they all lean over the front of their skis. They don't do that for looks. If you don't do that, your skis go straight up in the air. I don't know the physics behind that, but that's what happens if you don't lean over the front of your skis. So I didn't, and the skis went up, and I'm coming, heading towards the planet with my skis on top and head on the bottom. You'll never find an article in Ski Magazine recommending to land that way. It's just not done. But uh, away I landed. Fortunately, my shoulder hit first, and it broke my shoulder, and the ski patrol had to come and take me down, and my sister drove me back to Los Angeles, and I went in the hospital, and they operated on my shoulder, and I'm out of work for six weeks. 
And uh, I got back to work, and I was back to work about a month or so. And um, somebody had a party that lasted all night long. And, and in the morning, most of the people were gone. There was about four of us left. And the woman that owned the house said, if somebody will take me to the store and get some eggs, I'll make breakfast. And I said, I'll do it. And my Harley was parked across the driveway. So we went and got on the scooter and started to go. Now, it's April. April in Southern California. It's not hot. It's not cold. It's brisk. And, uh, and it was right just when we got on. It was dark when we fired up the scooter. But then the sun spread across the horizon, you know. And that's a beautiful kind of sexy look. And we got that Harley going. And, and there's not any traffic, really, to speak of. And it's before the California helmet law. So our hair is flying in the air. And we got that rumble going. And the sun's just coming up over the horizon. I mean, everything about it was so sexy. We both thought, wouldn't it be beautiful to make love in the great outdoors? It just seemed like it was irresistible. The problem is, I don't know if anybody's familiar with downtown Burbank, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's not a place with a lot of great outdoor lovemaking venues. We found a four-story parking structure, and uh, the gate was locked. So we went around to the fire escape, went up the fire escape, and uh, the door was locked. And I said, you know, fire escape, it's got to be unlocked from the inside. It's a law. So I jumped up on the wall. I'm going to jump over, open the door. We'll have the whole thing to ourselves. And uh, I, I made the jump, but I, but I didn't quite get over the top right. It was, the wall was thicker than I thought, and I, and I didn't have the upper body strength, and I'm swinging back and forth. I know I'm going to get over because I always, almost always do. Uh, <laughs> This was one of the other times, you know, this is one of the times when I saw the building like it was taken off like a rocket. And I thought, this is a stationary building. I'm falling. And because uh, so, I'm quick like that. And uh, my dad was an engineer. He figured out later that a 185-pound man falling 54 feet takes 1.3 seconds. It's, uh, it's not long, but it's, uh, it's not like you fall off a house. You're on the ground almost before you realize you fell. 1.3 seconds is just enough time to go, oh, shit. And, uh, I, uh, I landed feet first, and my knees buckled, and my feet came up. My, I kicked myself in the ass and uh, broke my pelvis in two places and snapped the heel bone off my right foot and shoved it through my foot and broke all the little bones in my foot. So, needless to say, I didn't walk away from that. Uh, I, I was laying there, oh, you know. <laughs> woman that was with me ran in the hot. It's, oh, yeah, this is the thing. God has always been with me, whether I recognize it or not. This was the parking structure of St. Joseph's Hospital. So she ran in the ER and she said, help me. Uh, my friend just fell off your parking lot and it broke him. And uh, so he's uh, it's easy to find him. He's right at the bottom of the fire escape there. And so, so they got me. They put me in an ambulance and drove me across the lawn. And uh, so I was in the ER and the trauma ward for a little while, and they put me in a room, and I was in that hospital for 10 days while they tried to figure out what to do with my foot. Because my foot was so exploded, it didn't break the skin, but it blew up on the inside, and so it was all swollen. It was just a bag of bones. And if, if you look down at the end of your own leg, and you see this, like, multicolored tetherball with toes. You know, you know this is serious. And... Uh, so that, but I had friends coming in and, and bringing me gifts, you know, and it never occurred to me to say to the doctors, look, I understand you're giving me Demerol and Percodan for the pain. Thank you. I'm self-administering Irish whiskey and cocaine. Is that going to be a conflict? Uh, uh, 
<laughs> but uh, and I and I <laughs> hey, I'm in the hospital. It's not like they have to come find me in the gutter somewhere, you know. Uh, what's the matter with the guy in the bed number four? I don't know. He's having some kind of seizure. Anyway, but I, I I was in there for ten days and then I got out and I had crutches and I had they operated on my foot and and. Uh, um, put me in a cast and it took me five months before I could walk without crutches or a cane or something and uh, so and that so that there was that and then also uh, my daughter I told you my daughter was living with her mother and her and her uh, stepfather and uh, I was still in her life we would do things together a lot and, and I was supposed to go pick her up on a Saturday after Saturday at noon and the idea was she, we were going to go see a movie, we were going to have dinner, she'd spend the night at my house, and I'd bring her back Sunday afternoon. And by the time I got over to her house, about 15 miles from my house, uh, Saturday afternoon, uh, I was drunk. I didn't mean to be drunk. I really didn't intend to be drunk. I didn't intend to have a couple of beers for breakfast, like people do, you know. And uh, and I guess I switched to whiskey or something, or, I don't know. But anyway, I was drunk. And I knew I was drunk. I tried to act like I wasn't. I didn't fool anybody. By the way, if you're new, uh, you should know. If somebody asks you, have you been drinking, they already know the answer. So uh, <laughs> so I, I, my, my daughter's stepfather, who uh, did not hate me, he liked me, and I liked him. We got along fine. But he said to me, Doug, you're drunk. And I said, I am. I am. There's no point in, conf in uh, debating this. He said, well, I can't let Star get in the car with you. Okay, I get it. I said, I'm really sorry. He said, so am I. I said, I was really looking forward to this. He said, so was Star. But I hope you understand. I, I just can't let that happen. And I said, I get it. I get it. And I, I was crushed. Because I want to be a good father. I really, I had a good father. And I know what good parenting looks like. And that's what I wanted to be for my daughter. And I'm drunk at noon on a Saturday when we're going to spend the day together. And I just, I said, okay. I said, it won't happen again. And Stu said, I hope not. And I got in the car and I started to drive away and I got down the block and I just, I couldn't hold the tears. I'm just, they came out like Niagara Falls. I couldn't even see to drive. I'm like, I turned on the windshield wipers. <laughs> it was no help. And uh, so I pulled into this, uh, I got a few blocks away and I pulled into this little strip mall parking lot and I opened the door and put my feet on the pavement my head in my hands and I just sobbed like a baby uncontrollably I couldn't stand the pain of, of being that lousy father that couldn't stay sober to have a fun day with his daughter the most important person in the world to me and I looked up I saw this red neon sign that said liquor and I got out of the car and I walked in that liquor store and I put my money on the table and I got a pint of whiskey and I came back and I had a couple pulls on that bottle and I was all right. I was all right. I, to go from that inconsolable self-hatred and spiritual pain that I was in to being all right with just a couple of swallows of a liquid. If, if they knew what that could do, <laughs> they, they wouldn't even question why do you drink so much. You know, and every time I tell this story here, this head's nodding, this head's nodding in here, because you're the ones who understand. You're the ones like when, 
when uh, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob went to visit uh, Bill Dodson in the hospital after Dr. Bob got sober. And he said, don't, don't listen, you guys, people, I appreciate it. People who try to talk to me about my drinking, it never does any good. Thanks. And they said, we didn't talk, come to talk to you about your drinking. We came to tell you about our drinking. And they did. And they left. And they came back the next day when Bill D's wife was there. And he said, these are the guys I told you about. The ones who understand. That's who we are. That's who we are. We're the ones who understand. And we can't expect anybody else to understand. Alcohol does not do for them what it does for us. And so uh, my life was just falling apart. It was just coming completely unthreaded. And uh, a friend of mine got sober about the time I fell off that parking lot. And uh, and her life was, was getting great. She was fun to drink with. I hated to lose her as a drinking partner. But, man, I was so happy to see her. She turned into a lady almost immediately. You know, she would be where she said she was going to be when she said she was going to be there every time, dressed appropriately and speaking in whole sentences. And uh, I was impressed. And uh, But every time you talk to her, she's like, well, steps, and I'm out of the big book, and I'm out of the meetings, and I'm with my sponsor. And Finally, I said, Ted, I don't know if you're trying to draft me into your organization or what, but I'll tell you this. If I ever see alcohol interfering with my life, I probably will go to AA. (laughs) She said, really? Doug, what would you call interference? Brain death? I said, okay, I see where you're going with this. Um, But I don't think that accidents should count. Anybody fall off a four-story building, they're going to get hurt drunk or sober. you got alcoholism mixed up with gravity, sweetheart. And uh, So she just said, okay, whatever. She's, she just went away. <laughs> but every, all that week, every time I, I had a little quiet moment, I picture Teddy's face saying, what would you call interference, brain death? And I started thinking about, that's a possibility. That's a possible. Any of the accidents that I told you about, ones I didn't tell you about, could have ended in brain death. I was lucky they didn't. And the next one might. And there'll be a next one. I got all that information. I realized all that came true for me in my head. And it scared me. It scared the hell out of me. I could end up spending the rest of my life in bed or in a wheelchair, unable to feed myself or go to the bathroom by myself because I drank. And if I keep drinking, that could happen. And that scared me. That scared me a lot. And so I rushed right down to AA three years later. And uh, (laughs) somebody told me, if you want to check out AA, go to a big speaker meeting. They'll leave you alone. That's a lie. That's not true. We don't stay sober leaving new people alone. That's not how it works. Uh, But I guess they meant, you know, I wouldn't be asked to share or something. But I went to this big speaker meeting, and it was a meeting that started at 830. And I got there. I think I got there around 630 because I didn't know what time it started, and I didn't want to be late. I didn't know if you had to fill out papers or whatever. And so so I got there, and I walked into this room, and it was a subterranean community room at a big hospital in Van Nuys, California. And... uh, People were laughing and hugging and setting up chairs and making coffee and setting up their literature table. And I'm over leaning against the wall by the double doors looking irritated because I don't want anybody to talk to me. You know, if I look if I look irritated enough, maybe they just don't want to deal with me. But they did. They come. Hey, you're new, right? And I'd say no. <laughs> and they go away. And uh, except this one guy, this guy, Hank, came up and he goes, hey, you're new. And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, oh, I haven't seen you here before. What's your name? I said, my name's Doug. 
And you haven't seen me here before because I have never been here before. Okay? That explains that. Okay, take a hike. And uh, he said, oh, well, that's what I mean by new, man. You're, you're, you're this first time here. You're new. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. I'm new like I've never been here before, but I'm not new like a new member. Okay? <laughs> I, I don't know what it looks like from your side, but from over here, I'm not standing up. Help me, help me. I'm drowning in the sea of alcohol. That's not me, man. I'm not your target market. Okay? I'm just here checking it out. I'm observing. I'm, I'm, I'm auditing the class. You know what I'm saying? You know, I'm just I'm just checking it out, man. So I get a don't uh, don't give me your number. Don't ask for mine. Don't put me on your little roster or whatever you guys do. You know, uh, I'm <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I I I I like drinking. I, I uh, drank on the way here. You know, so I mean, uh, I plan to drink on the way home. So I, you know, I'm not your guy. Why don't you go help somebody else? You know, I'm uh, <laughs> I'm just. Just over here, minding my own business. You might try that sometime. See how that works for you. And like, you know, you can't insult you people away. He's going, I like you. You're going to fit right in. So, uh, okay, whatever. And then on the other side of the double doors, there was another guy that looked kind of like me. You know, he had like beard and long hair, and he was sitting there looking irritated. And I thought... Oh, shit, we're the cool section. This is, we're the cool section of AA over here. You know, and people would say, there's some seats over here empty if you want to sit down. No, no, I'm fine. Uh, I see people come in, they put down a jacket, put down keys, put down a purse, no personal keys, no jacket, that seat's available. I'm going to figure out it. I get it. Uh, but I may have to leave before your deal is over. So if I have to leave, I don't want to cause a big scene, okay? And I think, I thought about this a few months ago. If somebody said to me today, I might have to leave before the meeting's over, I would figure they're going to get a call or a text or something. Nobody had cell phones in 1986. <laughs> you know? <laughs> they, some people had pagers. Uh, I didn't have a pager. I had <laughs> I, I had a screen door, I mean, a, a garage door opener with a belt clip on it. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> so, you know, it would look cool, you know, like somebody might want to contact me or something. And, and it was real handy because it never bothers you if you don't want it to. But if you're in the middle of a conversation and you want to go get a drink, you can just go, um, I got to get this. I'll be right back. It's great. It's great unless somebody says, what is that? It looks like my garage door opener. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it is. It's a you know, combination uh, garage door opener, pager, and uh, TV remote. You know, it's the latest, coolest thing. I got one. And uh, so me and this other cool guy are leaning against the wall, and they started the meeting. And uh, they read stuff, you know, like we did tonight. And uh, um, I know it was a speaker meeting. It's funny. I can't tell you. Who the speaker was. I can't tell you if the speaker was a man or a woman, let alone what he or she said. I, I think that's that's surprising. It amuses me today because uh, sometimes when you're a speaker, they treat you like you're some big deal. You know, like we got we got a fruit basket and a box of candy, you know, was in our room and stuff. You know, and, and uh, Tracy and Bob got us gifts, and it's like I always want to say I don't know if you got the right guy. You know, I'm just somebody that just spent half of my life hurting everybody that ever cared about me. Yeah, yeah, tell us about that. And so. Uh, <laughs> and so, so uh, they started the meeting, and, and at one point, the secretary said, we have a birthday tonight for Ruth for 18 years. And I thought, well, that's cool. They celebrate people's birthdays. So I'm looking around for Ruth, some 18-year-old tiny honey, right? And so uh, 
looking around, and uh, Ruth gets up. She's walking up to the stage. It's one of those meetings where they have a stage, you know, the podium's up on the stage, and you have to go upstairs to get to it. Excuse me. And Ruth is walking towards... She's the only one walking towards the stage, so I know that's Ruth. Ruth is 50 if she's a day. And the first thing I thought was, God damn, if she's 18, she should stop drinking. And, uh, but, you know, she didn't look bad. I mean, she looked good. Uh, she looked great for 50, a little whip for a teenager, that's all. And, uh, but I, I get it. Okay, this is AA. They don't drink. Ruth hadn't had a drink in 18 years. Happy birthday, Ruth. I cued the choir. I didn't know. You know, it's like all of a sudden everybody started. I don't know if you do this uh, in Missouri, but uh, in California, Southern California, we clap for everything. We sing, you know. And call it, we don't call them anniversaries. We call them birthdays. And uh, so uh, everybody starts singing, happy birthday to you. And I'm a musician. You know, uh, I've been a musician most of my life. And... Um, I can tell bad singing from good singing. This is bad singing. This is four. This is 200 people singing in four different keys at the same time. Doesn't seem to bother anybody but me. And mo many of these people are not even committed to the key they started in. And I, I looked over at the other cool guy to see if it's bothering him. He's singing with him. So, okay. So I'm really by myself. And so... Um, Happy birthday. Keep coming back. And Ruth gets up. She blows out these candles and she gets up to the microphone. She says, my name's Ruth and I'm an alcoholic. And of course, everybody goes, hi, Ruth. <laughs> oh my God. This is like kindergarten. I can't believe this. You know, it's like people are grownups. I mean, uh, uh, my friend Scott Redman used to say, this is some level of lameness I never knew was available. <laughs> Ruth says, I want you to know that over these last uh, 18 years of sobriety, I've attended a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous every single day. I, I didn't know you could go to a meeting every day, let alone that somebody would do that. And for 18 years, I'm just uh, it's just a lot of information to absorb. Uh, and I, uh, I thought, well, you're you're a little slow, aren't you, Ruth? Uh, <laughs> I looked over at the other cool guy. Now I know he's not cool. He's a member. Why he's standing at the back, I don't know. Maybe he's got the newcomer catcher commitment or something. But he's, but he's now heading over to me. And I know he's a member because he's got his hand out like we do, you know, to give away. And that sunbeam for Jesus smile. You know, <laughs> takes my hand in both hands and he says, hey, I'll tell you what. You stay sober a year. We'll give you one of them cakes. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, if I don't drink for a year, I get a cake. I was, so, I was too shocked to insult him. I, I said, uh... I'm not much of a pastry eater, uh, but but thank you, uh, thank you. Uh, 
if I wanted a cake, I'd just stop at Safeway on the way home. You know, it, it, I think they're like five bucks. Uh, uh, or I could not drink for a year. I don't know. Let me see. Uh, it's not even out of my way. i got to stop and get a six-pack anyway. But, uh, but thanks. Thank you very much. And, uh, so, But at one point after the speaker... The secretary held up this book and she said, this is our big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the basic text of our program. The only authority on AA. She said, if you're new tonight, please don't leave without this book. I thought, well, I am new. We established that. So I'll steal the book. And, uh, <laughs> she said, we sell it at our cost. I said, not to me, honey. Uh, I'm going to go pick up that book, act like I'm fascinated, walk towards the door, walk right out the door going, this is great. This is really going to help. Wow. <laughs> Fantastic. And I just, I could hardly wait to try it because the worst that could happen is somebody say, hey, where are you going with that book? But I had a feeling they'd say, let him go. And so I really wanted to try this. And uh, But then she screwed it up before I even had a chance. She said, if you're new tonight and you're financially embarrassed, we understand that. We've been there. We want you to have the book. We'll make very liberal credit arrangements, including nothing down and nothing a week till you get back on your feet. <sighs> now i got to buy the book. Because <laughs> I have my pride. Like, I'll steal from you, but I won't accept your damn charity. And, uh, so now I got to wait till the end of the meeting, and I go up to her and I say, "Excuse me, uh, ma'am, can I uh, can I buy one of your books?" She said, "Oh, the big book? <laughs> yeah, the big book. Yeah, I've uh, seen bigger. Um, <laughs> I got two two books on my kitchen table right now, three times the size of that book. <laughs> what? Uh, how much is it?" Uh, she said, "It's four sixty-five. Do you have it?" Four dollars and sixty-five cents. I'm thinking twenty, twenty-five bucks. You know, it's a hardcover book. Four dollars and sixty-five cents. She goes, "Yeah, do you have it?" Yeah, I do. In fact, here's a five. Keep the change. <laughs> yeah, because I'm on my feet. Okay, honey. You know, uh, I want you to use that change to help a drunk somewhere. Because I'm on my feet. All right. So I got my book, and on the way home, I stopped and got a bottle of whiskey. So I get home with my fifth of whiskey and my big book, and I poured about three fingers of whiskey, and I sat down to read this book. I did not by any means stay up all night studying the big book. That didn't happen. Because I have the ability to look at the title of a chapter, almost any book, and pretty much know what's in the chapter. <laughs> I don't know. It's a gift that I have. And so... Uh, so some of it I didn't bother with. The doctor's opinion. I've had doctor's opinions. <laughs> Chapter one, Bill's story. Who cares? Chapter two, there's a solution. That's a sales pitch. Young man, there's a solution to your problem. The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous will give you a life beyond your wildest drunken dreams. Great. Chapter three, more about alcoholism, which sounded like it actually could be the most boring piece of literature in the English language. <laughs> more about alcoholism. I'm skipping over that. Man, I'm already up to chapter four. I've hardly read a word. Chapter four, we agnostics. <laughs> we agnostics. Let me tell you something. When I went to my first meeting, I expected when I walked in to find a group of people who used to drink like I do and don't drink anymore. I knew that much about AA. And they were mostly atheists and agnostics. Nobody ever told me that. I just made it up. And I know I didn't. My grandmother was a drunk 
who found Jesus and got sober. She quit drinking and smoking just like that, turned her life over to Jesus, uh, became an ordained minister in the Pentecostal church. She opened a Skid Row mission on Beacon Street in San Pedro. It's a really nasty area of San Pedro at that time. San Pedro, California, the uh, L.A. Harbor. And uh, she had ran this Skid Row mission down there, the little uh, um, uh, white dove uh, uh, missionary. And uh, so I, I, I knew you could get sober on soup and Jesus. I had seen that done. It just never seemed worth it to me. And uh, But my grandmother hated AA. And I... I never really knew why. I always assumed that there was because there was no God here. That she got people sober using God, and in AA they used I don't know logic or something. And so, uh, when I came to AA and heard my higher power, power greater than myself, humbly asked Him with a capital H, admitted to God, prayed to God, told God, "Oh my God, God, the last house on the block is Sunday school, and I'm irritated, irritated." Um, but now I'm reading this book. The secretary had said was the only authority. And it's got a whole chapter called We Agnostics. Okay, this is it. This is how the smart people get sober without God. So, I poured another three fingers and I read that chapter all the way through. And I got done and I thought, I have absolutely no idea what I just read. (laughs) So, I poured some more whiskey and I read it again. And I'm not sure, but I think I read that chapter three times that night looking for how the smart people stay sober without God. And it's not in there. It's a trick title. It should be called How We Agnostics Came to Believe in a Power Greater Than Ourselves Which Saved Us from a Seemingly Hopeless State of Mind and Body, but it just won't fit on the page. So anyway, um, so I, but eventually, probably I think in the third reading, some, uh, a sentence I had already read a couple of times jumped off the page at me. It says, we found that God doesn't make too hard terms on those who seek him. Hmm. We found that God doesn't make too hard terms. It's pretty subtle, but it's incredibly significant, or it was to me, and it still is, because uh, I was mildly knowledgeable about religions of the world, Western and Eastern. It was an interest I had. Um, and, uh, and I never heard anybody say in any religion that I thought I knew about, in my drunken, my drunken alcoholic opinion, uh, we don't think God makes hard terms. It seemed like they all said he does make hard terms. And different terms for each each group. My grandmother's Pentecostal church never said God doesn't make too hard terms. They've anything, they said just the opposite. You know, uh, they call me. Uh, he says, <laughs> hello, uh, I hope you brought your guitar. We're going to make a joyful noise tonight. And uh, they would say, you know, uh, we are very sure that God makes hard times on those who seek Him. Boy, you know God will not even hear your prayers unless you're baptized. And I don't mean to sprinkle on the forehead like some Methodists know I'm talking about. Total submission. Total submission, boy. That's why we got a tank of water for Christ up here. Come on up. Come on up, son. We're going to soak you down, pull you up, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Praise Jesus. Amen. Somebody get the boy a towel. And, uh, you know, I'm like 14 years old. I'm just going, yeah, I don't think so. I know my, I, I know my grandmother wouldn't let him drown me, but I'm not really sure about them, you know. Um, maybe she told them I touched myself. You know, they, uh, they could be sending my ass to Jesus for my own good. And, I, I, you know, I don't have to deal with that. I, 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 know, I know one thing. I'm not getting wet in this room tonight. I told them, you know, I, 
Uh, I got brand new Levi's on. Shrink to fit. You know, the brand new shrink to fit. So get in that water, man. I can ride my bicycle home. You know. So. Okay, I'll see you later. I'll be back. You know, and like, I'm out of there. I'm just gone. But it wasn't just the Pentecostals. Yeah, they're a little over the top. My girlfriend was Catholic. She had to go to confession, communion, confirmation, a bunch of other cons to uh, <laughs> determine how many Hail Marys and Our Fathers would cleanse her soul of the various kinds of sins. Because I know we got Catholics in St. Louis. You can validate me. Catholics don't have sin. They have them categorized. They got levels of venial, menial, cardinal, mortal. Some of them, you don't even have to do them if you think about them. Expressway to hell, partner. It's like, woohoo, woohoo. That is not for me, you know. <laughs> you could burn in perdition for thinking evil thoughts. You know, I wonder how long I could go without thinking about, oh, shit. And, uh, so, uh my friend Michael was an Orthodox Jew. He and his brother Sherm had to wear spit girls to school, which, I, oh, there's a loving God for you. you know. <laughs> spit girls to school. And uh, we'll make a fight over you yet, young man. And I, I, I went over to Michael's house for dinner. His mom says, Doug, welcome to our home. It's an honor to have you. Would you like to join us in some wine and challah? <laughs> some what? She said, uh... Would you like to join the family in some wine and challah? I said, well, I'll have some wine. I, uh, I'm not much of a pastry eater, uh, Mrs. Stein. And, uh, and then there were Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims. Oh, my. So I just, by the time I got to AA, I'm like, here's the line. All the religions of the world over there, I'll be over here making fun of you. Come on, come on. And uh, so... But uh, And I didn't have an epiphany when I read that that uh, sentence. We found that God doesn't make too hard terms on those who seek him. Preceded by another sentence, just as important. You don't have to accept anyone's concept of God. Ooh. You're going to have to have some kind of a concept of God for the successful consummation of this process. But you get to choose it. They talk about a designer God here in AA. Now, I didn't know that then. But uh, whatever concept of God you have, it seems to be okay with the Creator. I don't know any, any other spiritual body that has those kind of terms. And, and, uh, and I didn't realize all that at once, and I didn't have an epiphany when I realized what this said. But I did go back to AA, because I found it interesting, and I started to fall in love with AA. But I, my first eight months in AA, I didn't have a home group. I went to meetings all over. There were about 2,000 meetings a week in L.A. at that time. And it's a pretty wide area, so I would—I uh, really didn't want anybody to get to know me. I wanted to check it out, you know, uh, from a distance. Uh, but I—but I got a good overview of Alcoholics Anonymous, and so I didn't have a home group. I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't read the book. I didn't take the steps. I didn't know what a tradition was. I didn't have a commitment. I didn't believe in God, and I was drinking every day. <laughs> Except for that, I had a pretty good program. You know, like, <laughs> you know and my whole program was keep coming back. But I did that for eight months. And I took bogus chips, you know, like 30-day chips and 60-day chips and 90-day. I had four different sobriety dates at four different groups, which is kind of dangerous because you go to one group and there's like 30 people there. And then two of them are at this other meeting that you go to the next day. And, you know, you, you know, like somebody would remember how many, what kind of chip I took. But I thought it was all about me. But, um, but eventually... Um, and there's some groups that I started really kind of fall in love with. The San Fernando group, I walked in there, and it looked like it was all cowboys and scooter trash and housewives. And I was like, that my people. You know, so 
Um, but uh, after about eight months, I came home from a meeting one night. It's a meeting that was over at 10 o'clock, and I came home. It was like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. I had a bottle of whiskey, and I laid on the floor and turned on the TV and drank whiskey till I passed out, which is what I usually did. And woke up about 3 a.m., and... Uh, the bottle was about half full. I got the bottle, turned off the TV, and I crawled on my hands and knees through the living room, through the hallway into the bedroom to go to bed. That, some people call that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, crawling through your own house on your hands and knees. I just call it going to bed. You know, I, 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 first time I thought of it, I thought it was brilliant. Hey, you can't fall off the floor. And, uh, uh, so. I got into the bedroom and I stood up to get undressed and I fell. I fell on my knees and I spilled whiskey all over this bed and I grabbed the bottle and I set it in a safe place and my knees grabbed this bedspread and started sucking whiskey out of the bedspread and uh, I don't know, a voice in my head said, hey man, that ain't right. <laughs> you, uh, you thirsty? There's whiskey in the bottle, man. No, I'm not thirsty. I'm frugal. I, uh, <laughs> I'll waste my life, but I'm not letting the whiskey evaporate in the bedspread overnight. And uh, I looked at what I was doing, and I, I, I knew it was, I knew what I was doing was because I was an alcoholic. There was no question about that. What I didn't know was what I could do about it, because I was at a bottom psychologically that I hadn't been at before. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be there sucking whiskey out of the bedspread when there's whiskey in the bottle and I'm done drinking. And I, uh, I did a dumb thing. I said, God, if you're there, please help me. Absolutely meant it. It was a sincere prayer of surrender. But I didn't think anybody was listening. I just said it because I was out of ideas. And I went to bed and I went to sleep. And over the next couple of weeks, every single day, something odd would happen. I go in my neighborhood liquor store. There's somebody from AA behind the counter. That's never happened before. And it can't happen. But there he is, Ralph. What are you doing here? He said, no, what are you doing here? Uh, just, I need to get some cigarettes. And I went somewhere else and got a bottle. And I, I'm in a restaurant in Burbank. I'm working across the street. And at lunchtime, I went over to have a Mexican restaurant, a Mexican dinner by myself. And uh, start to order a margarita. The waitress is somebody I know from AA. And I said, hey, oh, hey. Uh, I'm in the supermarket in the Lurker Department. Reach up for a bottle. Somebody from AA is pushing a cart towards me. Yeah, one day at a time. <laughs> yeah, keep it simple. Beautiful, beautiful life, isn't it? And, uh, you know, because I got four different sobriety dates in four different groups. I'm lying to everybody. And uh, all these things that every single day something like this has happened. It's not like the parting of the Red Seas or anything, but every day. And after a while, you can't ignore it. Um, and then on the 14th day of this, I'm on the way to work at 630 in the morning. And uh, I just killed a bottle of Bushmills, a half pint of Bushmills, and uh, rolled down the window and tossed this bottle out. I don't keep empty bottles in the car. They're illegal and useless. <laughs> and, uh, so I rolled down the window, and a guy from AA is driving towards me just as I threw the bottle out the window in front of his car. Bang, 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 bang. And he, I saw him go, whoa. And, and I, God, where are these people coming from? They're like cockroaches. You know, they're like, rarely have we seen a person fail. <laughs> and... Uh, but it's like those stupid miracles that they talk about in AA. And the minute I thought the word miracle, it was like I could hear God laughing, you know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. 
Uh, and I pulled my car over to the side of the road and I sat there for a few minutes. And I remember that I'd been on my knees and said, God, if you're there, please help me. Clear as a bell, I could see it. And every day since then, somebody from AA was between me and a drink. And I got it. I mean, these, this could be coincidences. Before it happened to me, I would have said, interesting coincidences. And maybe it was coincidence. Or maybe it was a miracle. I don't know. And maybe there's no difference between coincidence and miracle. I don't know that. But I know what happened. And uh, all of a sudden, I felt comfortable. I thought, AA had told me, ask God for help and the help will come. And that's what I did. And that's what happened. In a funny way. Literally, in a funny way. Little pain in the ass God jokes. And... uh, and I came to believe. I sat there in that car on the way to work that morning, and I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, and maybe would. And uh, I went back to my my new home group, my San Fernando group, which I like going to, and I I had to tell them, listen, I, I I've been lying to you. I, I you know I took chips here, and and I I've been saying that I was sober. I haven't been sober. I've been drinking every day. And here's what happened. I prayed and I got an answer and and I had this amazing Bill Wilson white light spiritual experience. And they were like, and this guy, this old curmudgeon sage comes over and he goes, "Uh, congratulations, Doug. I hope that works for you. I said, I'm sure it will. It was, you know, what I had was like the major Bill Wilson white light experience. You know, so I think that think I'm good now. And he goes, well, yeah, you're good if you don't drink, you know, so that's don't drink. And then I said, Sage, I don't know if you understand what happened to me. I had the major Bill Wilson white light spiritual awakening. OK, sorry about you and your educational variety, you know, but I had the real deal. And he goes, really? You had the educational variety. You came in here listening to us. Until you finally tried it and it worked for you. Bill Wilson had the educational variety. He had an opportunity to have a spiritual awakening 17 years before he got sober at Winchester Cathedral. And it took him 17 years of drinking to get it. Well, that white light you think you saw was your head coming out of your ass. So I love about old timers. They'll explain stuff to you. You know. What I mean? So I got busy in AA and I got a sponsor and and I still wasn't reading the book. I got a sponsor that was having me get busy in AA, uh, but he but for some reason he didn't tell me to read the book, so I wasn't reading the book. And I'm a slow reader. I got like a little minor dyslexia, and I mean I can read, but it's just uh, I'm a slow and and. Uh, so I just wasn't reading it, you know. But, see, I got a good memory. So I would, <laughs> I would hear people quote the book in meetings, and then I'd quote it back, you know, like I read it. <laughs> yeah, it says on, uh, says on page 84 that uh, love and tolerance of others is our code. Well, it does, but I didn't read it. I just quoted somebody out there were right. And it's a dangerous thing to do because people misquote the book every day. And I heard this lady say, you know, our book says, and I'm, yeah. Uh, she says, our book says that our drinking was but a symptom of deeper underlying causes and conditions. It doesn't exactly say that, but it's a pretty good paraphrase. But then she went on to add stuff out of left field. So if you don't find your deeper underlying cause and condition, you're going to get drunk. And I, no, <laughs> I have no idea. I told you I got my first drink was because I wanted to get laid and it worked. So I kept drinking and uh 
you know, it wasn't I, I, my deeper underlying cause and condition. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, and then I, oh, it just it hit me like a flag, you know, like when I was 24 years old, I moved from Orange County up to Hollywood to try to make a living in the music business. And I got hooked up with some people and I play guitar or bass in a, like a dance band. And, and then I'd, uh, somebody would say, Hey, you want to play a guitar or harmonica on my record? You know, and to do that or sing backup or write a song or co-write a song. And I was making a little money. I was supporting myself, I was paying the rent with my music. You know, I thought, Hey, I'm really doing it. And there was a show that came to town called hair. It was a Broadway musical opened on Broadway in New York and they've just moved it out to Hollywood and so I went to see this show and Hair if you don't know Hair was about hippies it was it was in, written in the late 60s and it was about hippies and and, uh, and there was like uh, dope smoking on stage and they sang about drugs you know and sex and and uh, there was a nude scene and I just I went to see this I fell in love I was like because I love musicals anyway I love Flower Drum Song and Oklahoma and the Music Man and all that stuff plus I love my rock and roll and this was like the combination of it all and I just I fell in love with it I said man I called the Aquarius Theater the next day I said hey uh, the receptionist said, can I help you? I said, yeah, I want to be in your show. She said, just a minute, I'll connect you. Like, I don't think this can happen today. In 1969, it was just a different world. Um, you know, and, and uh, so she connected me to the company manager. He said, can I help you? I said, I want to be in your show. He said, well, can you sing and dance? I said, yeah, yeah, that's what I do, man. That's, that's what I do for a living. And he goes, great. Um, well, I, never, I didn't know how to dance, you know, <laughs> but... but uh, but I could, you know, I mean, I'm up on the stage. You're dancing. That's good dancing. That's bad dancing. How hard could it be? So, uh, so I, but I was comfortable with my singing. So he said, uh, well, what are you doing Friday at 1 o'clock? I said, you tell me. He goes, uh, you got an audition. I do? Friday at 1 o'clock. He goes, yeah, bring a piece of sheet music. What's your name? I told him. He said, okay. So Friday at 1 o'clock, I got an audition. This is Wednesday. I went right down to the music store and bought a piece of sheet music that I like to sing. Took it home and practiced all night. All day Thursday, I got my guitar out. I'm practicing the song, little inflections and, you know, subtleties of the song and stuff. And Friday morning, I got my guitar out and I broke a string on my guitar. And I'm, hippies were like, oh, bad karma, dude. You know, so um, I went into my roommate's room to see if he had the string that I broke, the D string. And right in the middle of his dresser was an envelope D-string. Good karma, dude. So I picked up the envelope, and underneath the envelope was a little white capsule. I wonder what that is. Oh, because uh, we didn't have a PDR. You pretty much had to swallow test everything, you know. And, uh, that's the way it was in Laurel Canyon. It was a, a swallow test. And, uh, you know, very effective. Much more effective than heavy machinery or automotive vehicles. Just... If you eat it, you're going to know exactly what it does. And if somebody dies, don't eat the green shit. So anyway, um, so this was uh, THC, synthetic marijuana, and uh, a nice little psychedelic. So 45 minutes later, when I got down to the Aquarius Theater, <laughs> I, I rode my bike down there and uh, with, my, with my sheet music in my hand, you know, the throttle. And rode down there and parked the bike, put the kickstand down, and it seemed like it took me about four minutes to swing my leg over the bike. <laughs> like, oh, 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 okay. And I felt good. And uh, I, uh, I went up to, my, my hair was long over my shoulders. It just switched when I walked. And uh, I had these hip hugger bell bottoms on, these big bells like this. And, 
and uh, no shirt on. Just a vest with six layers of foot-long red, white, and blue leather fringe. You know, it was like a walking wind chime. <laughs> Floated up the stairs at the Aquarius Theater, and I stood at the back of the auditorium, and I'm watching people audition. And, I, and, and I'm God, these hippies can sing a dance, man. And I'm, I almost forgot why I was there. So somebody said, Doug Rowell, is Doug Rowell here? And I said, yeah. Went running down the aisle and up on stage, and I handed my sheet music to the piano player, and he opens it up. Big grin, and he starts to play. Bum, 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 bum. I said, ah, I feel good. And I went into this James Brown number. I thought I was the godfather of soul. And I'm down on one knee and back up. And when I hold you, and I'm just, and bum, 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 wow. And uh, the people that were judging the auditioners look at each other. They go, we love you, man. We love your energy. Can you do something a little mellower just so we kind of, you know, get a range of what you can do? And I said, yeah, no problem. I went into an a cappella version of Otis Redding's Dock of the Bay. And the piano player knew the tune and he picked it up. And we were right in the pocket. <laughs> Looks like nothing going to change. And, and it, I made myself cry. And, uh, <laughs> and I finished. They said, we love you, man. Just got to see you dance. So by this time, I'm flying. I hit it. And the guy started to play, and I started to move. And I'm just, I think I probably initially looked like the offspring of Joe Cocker and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, you know. like. <laughs> but uh, it got good to me. And I'm, and I'm over. <laughs> see my, my hair coming around, seeing trails of my hair. <laughs> and the fringe on this vest. And I heard somebody say, Jesus, can he dance? <laughs> I can dance. <laughs> Drugs and alcohol doing for me what I could not do for myself. And, uh, so they hired me. But I thought I was auditioning for the Hollywood show. They were auditioning for the Las Vegas show. So they said, well, we want you to report to Las Vegas next Tuesday. And I said, okay. All right. So I got my affairs in order. And Tuesday morning, I... Uh, Jumped on my scooter and I ate a tab of orange sunshine and headed out across the desert, you know, to report for fame and fortune. So I got to Vegas and uh, they, and I got worked into the show and I got some uh, little cameo parts and sang in the choir and learned all the tunes. And then I started understudying one of the lead roles. And uh, and then when we left Vegas, we closed in Vegas after six months and we became the first national tour of here. We toured the United States and Canada for three and a half years. And uh, and they gave me the lead role of Burger, the obnoxious, speed freak, sex crazed leader of the tribe. <laughs> yeah, it's a stretch, but I could do it. And and, uh, <laughs> and we would play all. I remember we played St. Louis, man. We played St. Louis in 1971, and it was uh, when the 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 city motto was, "There's no place like home when home is surprising St. Louis." And uh, uh, we, <laughs> we had some interesting surprises in St. Louis. We were here for a couple of weeks playing at the American Theater. And then we played all over, you know, all over the United States and up into Canada. And uh, people would come up on the... We'd start out in the audience, and then we'd they'd hear the music, and we'd start to come on stage, and we'd come on stage, and the show would happen. At the end of the show, we'd bring the audience up on stage. Come on up and dance with us. You know, come on up and dance. And so we'd bring everybody's dancing, and so people would come up and go, Hey, man... We're uh, we're having a party tonight over at the over at this. We own a bar, so once you come over and you guys drink for free all night. Okay, we'll be there. You know, uh, 
Somebody would come up, hey, man, you like pot? Here, Cincinnati and Panama Red, Acapulco Gold, you know. <laughs> Give us all this great dope. You like acid? Osley, Purple Haze, Orange Sunshine, Window Pane. Hey, 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 hey. You know, <laughs> some girl would come up and go, oh, my God. Oh, God, I love you. Take me. <laughs> okay. Uh, so sex, drugs, and rock and roll, traveling around the country, getting paid for it. It's a good job. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, when it was over, you know, I came back to L.A. and I tried to audition for a bunch of things. And that's how I ended up being a stagehand. Um, and I was a stagehand for 25 years. And uh, but I, call, I realized what happened that, you know, I, I looked at my life. I went out on the road. I just wanted to make people happy and sing and dance. And they made me into a drug addict and an alcoholic. So I was real, real disappointed. And I called my sponsor. I told him. You know, look, I just wanted to, you know, make people happy. And it turned out, he goes, uh, so uh, what's your problem? It's hair. Hair. He goes, if we cut your hair off? No, not my hair, the show. Remember I told you the show when I was a big star and everything? Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about the big star deal because, you know, because you're drunk now. Uh, but um, I thought you were, I thought you said you were loaded when you auditioned for that show. God, you can't tell them too much, you know, they remember. And I said, okay, well, then I don't know what my deeper underlying cause and condition is. And he said, well, I don't know what mine is either. Don't worry about it. If, uh, if you want to look for it, you know, it'll give you something to do between meetings. But meanwhile, go to a meeting tomorrow. Call me tomorrow. Read that book tomorrow. So read the book. Read the book tomorrow. Yeah. Read the whole book tomorrow? No, Doug, I want you to start reading that book. I should have told you sooner. I want you to read it every day. If you can't read a page, read a paragraph. If you can't read a paragraph, you know, read, uh, read a word, you know, but read it every day. You've got to stay in the middle of it. So I started reading. If I couldn't read a chapter, I'd read a page. If I couldn't read a page, I'd read a paragraph. And I got through that book hundreds of times since then. And it may be the best advice I ever got in AA. You know, I became an active member of AA. Um, and uh, and my life started to change. I started to uh, make amends to my family and to people that I owed money to. And uh, thinking that, you know, I, I'll never be able to make everything right. And, uh, you know, almost 29 years sober. And uh, and I just, I just have this beautiful life where I don't ever have a bad day. And I hear the music of Alcoholics Anonymous every day. And I like to talk about the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, you know what I think? The, the music is the laughter. We come in here sick unto death and dying and feeling like we'll never laugh again. And what's so damn funny? What are you people laughing at? I'm dying over here. Can anybody help me? What's so funny? And we stick around and you hear somebody laughing and you realize it's you. How many times have I heard somebody say, I heard somebody laughing and I realized it was me. So we start to get this thing. And we laugh ourselves weller than we were before we got sick. What an incredible gift that is. Think about it. We laugh ourselves weller than we were before we got sick. We have a terminal illness. And the, and the treatment is we come and hang out with people who are like us. We have fun and we laugh ourselves weller than we were before we got sick. It's an incredible gift. And yet there are people in meetings all over the country, maybe even in, in this room tonight, who will be handed this very special, incredible gift from God and say, no, thanks, I'd rather get loaded. Boy, nobody understands that, that answer like we do, that decision. 
We understand that decision. But if you're new, you don't have to be the one that goes out and dies because you can't surrender. You know, surrender a little bit. Get a sponsor. Do all the stupid stuff they tell you to do, <laughs> even if it's just to prove it won't work. And see what happens. If you don't drink for a year, we'll give you a cake. <laughs> Thank you.